So today's uh, message is called uh, Domestic Dynamics, uh, Consideration, Respect, and Reverent Cooperation. First section is Happily Incompatible. Uh, Just trying to get their slides up here. Okay. Apps are great when they work, but uh... all right, Owen. I'm going to need you on this. I think until it, for some reason, it gets going there. Okay, so the first section: happily incompatible relationships require navigation. They're not always smooth sailing because people differ from one another. We each have our own preferences, our own likes and dislikes. Our histories and upbringing can be very different. So getting along with another person requires navigation and often negotiation. Today, much of the message focuses on a marriage relationship, but much of it would also apply to other relationships, such as friends and coworkers. Respect and a willingness to cooperate go a long way toward getting along with those around us. You might be surprised to find out that such a revered and admired Christian as Billy Graham did not have a marriage that was absolutely unruffled. In his autobiography, Just As I Am, Billy Graham wrote, Ruth and I don't have a perfect marriage, but we have a great one. How can I say two things that seem so contradictory? In a perfect marriage, everything is always the finest and best imaginable. Like a Greek statue, the proportions are exact and the finish is unblemished. Who knows any human beings like that? For a married couple to expect perfection in each other is unrealistic. I don't hear any amens from the crowd. The unblemished ideal exists only in happily ever after fairy tales. Ruth likes to say, if two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. The sooner we accept that as a fact of life, the better we will be able to adjust to each other and enjoy togetherness. Happily incompatible is a good adjustment. In today's passage from 1 Peter 3, we look into the dynamics that help a Christian's marriage function better. Keeping God in view goes a long way to helping us deal with others' imperfections. Next slide, context. There's three contexts I want to kind of lay before you just before we get into the passage. Bolstering order in our relationships. Last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 2 in Peter's first letter, how believing in Christ draws us to crave the pure milk of the word like newborn babies. Thus, we are transformed to become living stones being built together into a spiritual house. We're also made a kingdom of priests. We're no longer in it just for ourselves, but conscious of living lives as God's own people declaring his goodness to others. 
I'm skipping the last part of chapter 2 because I'd like to save it for Good Friday because it ties in so well with Jesus' suffering for us at the cross. But we should reference it briefly because it begins a section with three parts describing how Christians can be flavoring society by the way they get along with others. And today's passage points back to this larger context back in chapter 2. In all three areas, accepting others' rightful authority is key. 2, 13 to 17 talks about submitting to civil officials in authority over us, not because they are the ultimate authority, only God can be in that role, but God is always in view as we submit to human authorities. 2, 13 and 17 Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. We give respect to those to whom respect is due. We fear God foremost and chiefly. All will in the end give account to him. Putin and NATO leaders alike will have to answer on the judgment day for their decisions. And did you catch that little phrase in 2.13? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. That's important. Don't skip over that. Our submitting or deference to authorities is ultimately because we want to please the Lord. When we make a turn and drive down the right side of the road instead of the left, like they do in England, we're doing it partly for the Lord's sake. It's the right thing to do. When we slow down coming into a residential setting, even when there's not an OPP car there, same thing. When we pay our taxes, we're again submitting to human authority. Uh, But it's also for the Lord's sake. Part of living good lives among the pagans, 2.12, for the purpose of honoring the Lord because we're his people. In 2.18, Peter switches to the relationship between workers and bosses, though back in that day, slavery was still practiced. Uh, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. A worker's cooperative conduct, acknowledging his boss's authority, Uh, could be commendable before God. That brings us to chapter 3, which turns to relationships within the family, specifically that of a husband and wife. Note the little phrase in the same way in 3.1 and 3.7. This is a connector pointing back to 2.13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. How a wife and husband relate to each other is part of this bigger picture of how Peter exhorts believers in general to honor God by their cooperative behavior, enhancing the social order, living what others in society would consider to be, quote, such good lives, 2.12. A second context here, egalitarian with respect to worth. It's a big word meaning equal, basically egalitarian with respect to worth. In discussing relationships between women and men, evangelicals fall largely into two camps. 
Egalitarians tend to view both genders as equal. Complementarians insist there are important differences between women and men. They complement each other. You can't treat them exactly the same. Some cultures have been repressive toward women. For example, in some Islamic countries, they're forced to dress a certain way, can't go out in public by themselves, can't drive a car, and so on. Generally, Christianity has had a, a liberating effect for women bound in such cultures. A classic egalitarian text is Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This verse emphasizes that in God's eyes, there's no difference in intrinsic worth between men and women. One is not better than the other. We're not inherently superior or inferior just because of our gender. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To all, regardless whether you're a girl or a boy, a woman or a man, you can become God's daughter or son through trusting in Christ. Egalitarians could also point that there are no caveats with regard to gender in Christ's command to love one another. John 15, 17, this is my command, love each other. If we find ourselves treating a fellow believer in a way that's not loving, especially if they're the opposite gender to us, we're not being true to Jesus. When it comes to cooperation and mutual submission, learning to get along and work together following common leadership. Egalitarians could also point out to uh, Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Note the out of reverence for Christ bit. Because we acknowledge Jesus as Lord, that helps us accept other Christians' authority. Same could be said for the many other one another passages in the New Testament. They are gender blind. A third context, Adam's fall, male abusiveness. Now, Before I go further into the complementarian aspects, it's important to proceed with caution given fallen human nature. It's all too easy for men to grab a proof text and try to twist it into a weapon, to try to coerce women, to, or to get or claim some advantage over them, to put them down. This goes all the way back to the first sin in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. God had done a mysteriously beautiful thing by taking one of Adam's ribs from his side and fashioning a helper suitable for him, Genesis 2.18. But when God calls Adam up on the carpet to account for the misdeed of eating from the one single tree he had forbidden, Adam is quick to blame and distance himself from the woman he had previously called bone of my bone. Genesis 3.11, and he, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. 
Centuries later, before 2000 BC, the esteemed patriarch Abraham, yes, Abraham, who made it into the Hebrews 11 Faith Hall of Fame, was all too quick to throw his wife Sarai under the proverbial bus when it suited him. Fleeing to Egypt during a severe famine, Abram persuades Sarai to lie and say she's just his sister because Abraham is afraid for his hide. This results in her getting taken briefly into Pharaoh's harem. Genesis 12:11-15. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when a Pharaoh's official saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. Thankfully, the Lord intervened before anything worse happened to Sarai, so Pharaoh gave her back to Abram. But Abram comes off looking pretty shabby in this episode, demeaning his wife, treating her like some widget to be manipulated for his own self-preservation. Next section, complementarian with respect to role. With those three contexts in mind, let's consider what the New Testament sets forth as the differences between the genders. Not, mind you, in regard to inherent worth, as if one's better than the other or superior in any way or more valuable to God, but in regard to role and the functions we play in cooperative and stable relationships. Remembering the injunction to love one another to submit to one another, to, as 1 Peter 2.17 puts it, show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul sets forth a a chain of accountability. Uh, Verses 3 and 11. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. There is a flow of leadership and accountability. But Paul is quick to remind men that it's not about independence. Men have an awe-inducing accountability themselves because Christ is their head. Paul writes in other passages about the relationship between wives and their husbands, so this is not a one-off statement. Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Colossians 3.18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Titus 2.4, and they, the older women, can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Paul seems pretty consistent about this differentiation of roles. Another important uh, sidebar, the Christian twist on authority. 
Now, mention of the word headship can cause dread for some because it's been so badly misused in the past, uh, forced into an excuse for wielding power and pain over one's spouse. Our Lord Jesus was quick to emphasize that authority in the Christian family is meant to be exercised very differently than it is in the world at large. Even Jesus' disciples fell into spats about who was the greatest. Jesus seized these as teachable moments to instruct them that being chief was really about serving. Mark 10, 42 to 45. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke records a similar instance, but with an added illustration of a waiter serving a table as in a restaurant. Luke twenty-two twenty-five to 27, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. Are you catching his drift? Authority is not something to be wielded like a club. It's not a matter of throwing your weight around or bullying in order to get your way. How can you best serve those in your care? This may mean subordinating your needs to their needs. Next section, the considerate husband wowed by his co-heir. Emphasis on the wowed. With those caveats in place, maybe we're ready to take a look at today's short reading without jumping to conclusions and not actually hearing the intent of the text. Let's back into it, beginning with Peter's counsel to husbands in verse 7. This is where the wife nudges the husband. Okay, 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Why take this approach? Because God is watching all we do. Our believing wife is his daughter, so that makes him the protective father-in-law. If we want him to hear our prayers, we will treat our wives properly. Our wife will be more inclined to support our prayers and be willing to pray with us, that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask, she'll be more willing to pray with us if we're dealing with her in a loving way. Peter says our wives are heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. It's one big composite Greek word, fellow heir or co-heir. That hints again at mutuality, equal footing, a sister in the faith. It harks back to 1 verse 4 where God has given us new birth into a living hope. 
and into an inheritance, that's hence the error part, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Your wife's faith will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, 1-7. Can you begin to imagine how splendid she will be in her eventual glory? Peter tells husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives. Hmm. Do you have a box for that? Is it automatic to consider her needs, her preferences? Can you put yourself in her shoes for a minute? The Greek phrase is literally according to knowledge. Hmm. Have you read any good marriage books lately? Yeah, I know you'd rather read your technical manual. But study your wife from time to time. What makes her tick? Do you know her favorite things? How she likes her back rubbed? Peter exhorts husbands, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Emphasis is on the respect, not the weaker bit. Yes, it's a fact of life that the Olympics and professional sports have separate categories for men and women for a reason. But as NIV Study Bible Commentary puts it, not a reference to moral stamina, strength of character, or mental capacity, but most likely to sheer physical strength. Us guys can tolerate a bit of roughhousing. Boys are often seen jostling each other and into contact sports. Perhaps like a rough clay flower pot will stand a tipping over or a fall from a short height. Whereas the fine antique teapot may be a weaker vessel, technically, but is actually far more valuable. It warrants being handled with particular care. Key phrases, treat them with respect. NRSV, paying honor to the woman. NLT, treat your wife with understanding as you live together. Next section, a wife adorned by her inner manner. Verses 1 to 6 in chapter 3 are addressed to wives who are believers. Now, Peter was aware some of them had become Christians since getting married, while their husbands had not. A goal in that case would be to demonstrate Christian living so convincingly that their husbands would want to become followers of Jesus too. Uh, verses 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. To be submissive does not mean being a doormat, but being subject to, to accept the other person's authority. But John MacArthur points out there are limits. God is still supreme. The husband is not to coerce her into doing anything against conscience. MacArthur writes, This precludes any coercion to sin, disobedience to God's word, or imposition of physical harm. End quote. There's no excuse for wife abuse. Get to safety. Protect your kids. Seek counseling and supports that may lead the abuser to consider the error of their ways. Sharon Dowd writes in Women's Bible Commentary, Today many congregations understand the provision of options for healing for the abused to be part of their mission. 
Rather than encouraging victims to suffer passively, they support shelters and counseling services to encourage movement towards wholeness. Verses 3 and 4 outline what true beauty is about as the apostle understands it. Not expensive jewelry or costly clothing with the latest fashions or an over-the-top hairdo to turn everyone's heads. Verse Peter 3, 4. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, there's enough to turn the fashion industry on its ear. Can we turn off the advertisements vying for our attention long enough to hear what Peter's saying? Your real adornment is an inside job, a type of beauty that will never fade even when you're 90, as God sees it. What's of great worth, NRSV, very precious, is a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, he's not meaning timid and mousy, See the end of verse 6. You are her daughters, Sarah's daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. NRSV, do what is good and never let fears alarm you. These gals are fearless as lions. How? Because they are trusting God most of all and fear him more than any mere human. Remember, Deborah and Jael, and Queen Esther, who faced enemies and death without flinching. Fearless. Peter adds concerning having a gentle, quiet spirit, verse 5, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. And he holds up Sarah as an example, who referred to Abraham as her master or lord. And when you look at the reference there, Genesis 18:12, is what John Piper calls a throwaway line, yet it shows Sarah's default way of referring to her husband as my lord, showing deference to him even after that Pharaoh incident. In scripture, it's not external appearance that matters so much. That can be very superficial compared to internal character. Jesus emphasized that God sees our inner being, what's happening in secret, Matthew 6, 4. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In closing, here's a poem called Marriage by Ruth Harms Calkin. I realize this isn't everyone's story, I'm sorry, but in many ways it represents what Peter has in mind when he emphasizes consideration, understanding, treating the other person with respect. Let's learn and pray for better marriages and other relationships as we listen. This is her poem. Marriage, exclamation mark. It's rough. It's tough. It's work. Anybody who says it isn't has never been married. Marriage has far bigger problems than toothpaste squeezed from the middle of the tube. Marriage means grappling, aching, struggling. It means putting up with personality weaknesses, accepting criticism, and giving each other freedom to fail. It means sharing deep feelings about fear and rejection. It means turning self-pity into laughter and taking a walk to gain control. Marriage means gentleness and joy. 
toughness and fortitude, fairness and forgiveness, and a walloping amount of sacrifice. Marriage means learning when to say nothing, when to keep talking, when to push a little, when to back off. It means acknowledging, I can't be God to you, I need him too. Marriage means you are the other part of me, I am the other part of you. We'll work through with never a thought of walking out. Marriage means two imperfect mates building permanently, giving totally, in partnership with a perfect God. Marriage, my love, means us. Let's pray. Lord, we need you so much in all our relationships. Lord, we've heard today from Peter his guidance, and we want to be better husbands. We want to be better wives. We admit we have failed miserably. Have mercy on us, Lord. In your grace, help us to love the other person, to respect them, to show consideration, to live with them according to knowledge. And thank you, Lord, for loving us so much and not giving up on us. In Christ's name, amen.